take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. As you're turning there, I, I loved that line from the song that he pursues you to forgive you. And I just want, as we get ready to hear God's word, some of you need to hear that this morning. You feel like you've been running. And just know this morning that your Savior pursues you. He's pursuing some of you even now. And you cannot outrun our shepherd. His goodness and his mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And so I invite you this morning, would you hear his call to come and rest in him? Whether for the first time or maybe the 10,000th time. But as we go to his word, just know that's the one who speaks to you this morning. So let's look together at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We are working our way through this book and we now find ourselves in verse 16. So Ecclesiastes 3.16 and I'm going to be reading through chapter 4 verse 6. So would you hear the word of the Lord? Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning I want to think about two words together. Looking and seeing. Looking and seeing. Even though they might seem very similar and both have to do with your eyes, there's actually a big difference between those two words. Looking is what you do when you want 
or hope or expect to see something. Seeing, on the other hand, is what you do when you observe what's actually there. So looking has this anticipatory element, this I think, I want, I hope that something will be there to see. But seeing is what's really there. For example, you might poke your head into a room, say, oh, I'm, uh, I'm looking for my wife. But you look around and what you see are other people. Or you might go online looking for a good new show to watch, but all you see are ones you've already seen. You go shopping for a new pair of shoes and you see lots of options, but you tell your friend, I just can't find what I'm looking for. Or one that I've experienced, I might go looking for cookies in our house, but all I see are leftovers and healthy snacks. It's hard in this world. The point is, we live in a world where what we're looking for and what we see don't always match up. And it's the same for the preacher in Ecclesiastes. We saw two weeks ago how he was searching for satisfaction. And he looked in all sorts of places for it. Back in chapters 1 and 2, he tried wisdom and learning. He tried pleasures like alcohol, sex, beautiful home. He tried working hard to get a bunch of stuff. But none of it satisfied him. He said it was all hevel, that word vanity. It was fleeting. It was out of his control. It was mysterious. It just slipped right through his fingers. Well, this week, he's still searching. But now, instead of trying to find satisfaction in a bunch of really good things, he's looking for satisfaction when everywhere he looks, all he sees is evil. And as he sees the brokenness of the world around him, it causes him to look for some particular kinds of satisfaction. And even though he doesn't find them in our passage, he does teach us at least what to look for. See, here's the thing about Ecclesiastes that can be downright frustrating if you're not prepared for it. Sometimes Ecclesiastes doesn't give us all the answers, but it does teach us the right questions to ask. So as we go through these verses, what the preacher is going to do is he's going to help us by telling us both what he sees in the world around him, what's really there, but he's also going to tell us what he's looking for in life. And just like for us, those two don't match up. But by helping us see what the broken world is really like and why looking for satisfaction in this world is vanity... He helps us know what it is that we're really looking for. So this morning we're going to look at three things the preacher saw in the world. And then we're going to see what it is he's looking for. First, in chapter, the end of chapter 3, he shows us that all he sees is wickedness, but he's looking for justice. Then he sees oppression, but is looking for comfort. And finally, he sees envy, but he's looking for rest. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to take an honest look at the broken world and ask this question. In a world of wickedness, oppression, and envy, what should we look for and how should we live? If that's what's really there, what do we do with that? So let's look at the preacher's 
first observation in 3.16. Look back there. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun, so here's what I saw, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So that, that moreover in the ESV, so this is pointing us back to chapter 3 when Pastor Ben preached last week. He said up in 3.10, I believe, yeah, he said, I have seen something. I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. So now he's saying, all right, I saw something else. This begins his list of what did he see? He saw that under the sun, remember, he's talking about in this life, in this world as we know it, under the sun there is rampant injustice. In fact, it's so bad, he says, that in the very place of justice, this would have been, just like in our day, this would have been the courts, the place where you went to obtain justice. He says, even where I, when I go to the justice system, even there, in the halls of justice, in the justice system, the place where justice is most expected and most needed in a society, instead, I see wickedness. The courts were corrupt. The justice system was broken. Judges and politicians were letting the guilty off with a bribe. Innocent people were convicted of crimes they didn't commit. The rich were able to get away with whatever they wanted because they had the money to hire better lawyers. The famous and powerful were treated differently than the average person. Good thing it's not like that anymore. So what are we to make of this reality? When we look for justice in the courts and in the justice system, but instead see wickedness, what are we to do? Well, before he gives us his conclusion, the preacher offers two reflections on this injustice in verses 17 and 18. See, both of them, he says, I said in my heart. These are what he's, he's talking to himself. So again, it's a godly thing to talk to yourself is what he says here. So look at the first one in verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So his first response to the injustice, he looks around and he sees it all around him and he reminds himself, justice will come. There may not be justice under the sun in this life, but as we read earlier in our call to worship from Psalm 9, the Lord has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. In other words, the wicked will not get away with their wickedness. There will come a time when God will judge. How can we be sure? Well, what does he say in the verse? For there is a time for every matter and for every work. There is a time for God in his mercy to overlook sin. And there is a time for God in his justice to judge sin. So when will that be? When is that time for God to judge sin? Well, as Pastor Ben helped us see about everything last week, when God knows it's best. Last week we saw that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And so we know, as does the preacher here, there is a perfect and beautiful time for God to judge the wicked. Psalm 75, 2, God declares, At the set time that I appoint, 
I will judge with equity. So when is that? I don't know. And neither do you. But God has set a time that he's appointed where he will judge. Not a minute sooner and not a minute later. But one day, God will right every wrong and bring justice to every injustice. Now that's a great place to start. As he's thinking about injustice in the world, that's a really, really good place to start. But he's still thinking some more. So it leads him to a second reflection in verse 18. Look there. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Now, this is really flattering, isn't it? This is the part you just want to put on your mirror as you get ready every day. You're just a beast. Well, what is he saying here? He's saying here that part of what God's doing by delaying his judgment on wickedness Right, Because he's still thinking about the timing of his judgment. And the fact that he hasn't judged yet, part of the reason is he's humbling us by reminding us that at the end of the day, you and I are mere creatures. Yes, we are made in the image of God. But the reality is, if this life under the sun is all there is, then in some ways, we are no different than the animals. In what ways? I'm glad you asked. We share three things, he says. We have the same breath, same death, same dust. Look at verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So what he's saying here is, first, man and beast share the same breath. Hopefully ours smells better, but we have the same breath. The only reason animals or people are alive today is because God is giving them breath. Little Scruffy at home is alive because God is giving him breath. You and I in the pews are alive because God is giving us breath. The bird that's flying overhead is alive because God is giving it breath. As Psalm 104, 29 says, when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. That's speaking about all God's creatures in the context. So we all share the same breath. The only reason any creature that's alive is alive is because it has the breath of God in it. But as Psalm 104 also said, both man and beast die. When that breath is taken back, we die. No matter how much more the brilliant and powerful man accomplishes in his lifetime, his life still comes to an end just like the dumbest animal. Let that just land on you for a second. The most insignificant, dumb animal out in the middle of nowhere will come to the same end as the greatest thinkers of our age. As one dies, so dies the other. And when we die, and when animals die, it says we both 
return to the dust. This is part of the curse of Genesis 3.19 where God said to Adam, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So what is his point? Why is he belaboring this idea that us and the animals share so much in common? His point in all this is that when God delays his judgment on wickedness, he is humbling us. He's putting us back in our rightful place by showing us that, yes, while we may be image bearers, we are still merely creatures and we are not the creator. God lives forever. He's in a category all by himself. He is He was, he is, and will be, and he is, I am. But we die. And even worse than that, we die with things incomplete. Like justice won't necessarily be served in this lifetime. We we want to see justice for ourselves, for others, and yet we just keep dying. Even when justice hasn't been served. When he says in verse 21... Who knows what happens to the spirit of man or the beast? What he means there is from experience. He's not saying that like there's no knowledge of it. He's saying, but firsthand eyewitness account. Remember, he's exploring life under the sun and he's telling us what he's seen. He's looking for empirical data, something that can be observed and quantified. And he's just telling the truth. Look, no one's seen or observed what happens to the spirit of man when he dies. If you're a doctor or a nurse, you can be in the room with an untold number of patients who die in front of you, but you don't witness anything with your eye about where their spirit goes. He's just telling us that like, we just don't know that. So based on the fact that God will one day bring his perfect judgment and the fact that we are simply humble creatures who don't get to determine when justice is served, He comes to his conclusion in verse 22. As he reflects on all that, here's what he concludes. So, I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is amazing in one sense because even in a world filled with wickedness and injustice, he says we can rejoice in what we do. Why does he say? Look, always pay attention to those words, for. A man should rejoice in his work. Why? For that is his lot. In other words, that's what God's given to us. Your lot, your portion, that was what was assigned to you in an inheritance. Like you get this lot, you get that lot. He says what God has given to us is to joyfully live within the bounds of our creatureliness. God will see to justice, whether now or later. We don't need to despair when we see injustice in our world. Because though the wrong seemed off so strong, God is the ruler yet. So we can entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. So what the preacher sees here is wickedness, right? But what he's looking for is justice. He's looking for a just judge because he's not finding it in the courts. He's not finding it in the political system or the judicial system, the legal system. He's saying, I'm looking for justice. I'm looking for a just judge. But the good news is, friends, we have that just judge. 
Because God will judge the world at the perfect time. When Jesus came, he experienced firsthand this very corruption. He felt the corruption of the justice system. And the very place where he should have seen justice and righteousness, he instead saw wickedness. They released Barabbas, a convicted felon, and instead put Jesus to death, who had committed no crimes. But even though he was innocent, Jesus did die for crimes committed. But Jesus died for the crimes that we've committed, the righteous for the unrighteous. But why did he need to die? Why would that have to take place? Romans 3 tells us this, the death of Jesus in our place, was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Remember I said there's a time in his mercy for God to overlook sin, and there's a time in his justice for God to judge sin. Well, Romans 3 says, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it, the death of Jesus, was to show his righteousness at the present time. Hear all this emphasis on the right time. So that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So for God to be just, for him to be the just judge, sin must be judged. He couldn't close his eyes, look away, brush it under the rug, Sin must be judged. And on the cross, it was judged in Jesus so that he can be the justifier of those who believe. And at the same time, he's not letting the guilty go free. He is just because he judged sin. And God promises that a judgment of perfect justice will one day come. Acts 17 says the times of ignorance God overlooked. Do you hear the same thing? But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. He has set a time on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He says there's a day just like the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, I know this. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Paul is saying in Acts 17, God has fixed a day on which that will happen. How can we be sure? Because he raised the judge from the dead. This is why we sing, Jesus will come back again to judge the living and the dead. And while that may be terrifying to the wicked, that is the greatest joy there is for the righteous. Because he will make all things right and bring perfect justice. As Isaiah foretold, and we celebrate every Christmas, and we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we love these words. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice. And with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And friends, the fact that God will judge wickedness with justice is really, really good news. Sometimes we hear, people hear the word judge or the idea that God will 
he will punish wrongdoing. They think, oh, I don't like that kind of God. I could never, I believe in a God of love, not a God of judgment. Well, friends, we sang earlier about the deep, sure love of Jesus. How sure, how sweet, how strong. But for Jesus to be that loving, he has to hate evil. We need a God who will judge wickedness. Listen to how one writer put it so well. He says, the biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation. And in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. He goes on, if God does not hate racial prejudice, he's neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. We need a just judge. And we have one in Jesus. And so we wait for him to bring his perfect justice to this broken world. And as we wait, we rejoice in the work he's given us to do. And we can rejoice in it, not only because we know there's a just judge, but also because we do know what happens to our spirit when we die. Because our just judge is also a resurrected redeemer. We know what happens to our spirit because Jesus told us and he showed us. He defeated the curse of death by becoming a curse for us. So now as Daniel 12 says, listen to these words. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake to everlasting life. So everywhere he looked, the preacher saw only wickedness but he was looking for justice. And we find that in Jesus. All right, now he makes another observation about our world in chapter four. Look at verse one. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. So now when he looks around, what he observes is oppression. In the Bible, oppression is when one person cheats another or takes advantage of another. It's when someone tries to get ahead by stepping on someone else. It's when someone abuses their power to gain something from those who have less power. And that's what was happening all around the preacher. But notice he says what was even worse was the fact that those who were suffering this oppression were ignored by those around them. Their tears went unnoticed and uncared about. No one stepped forward to help them. There was no one to comfort them. And the only thing worse than suffering is suffering alone. So what the preacher sees in the world around him is oppression, 
But what he's looking for is comfort. And when he doesn't see it, look at his reflections on that in verses 2 and 3. Listen to what he says. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He's basically saying, because of the oppression he sees everywhere, it's better to be dead than alive. Because, why is that so? Because the dead no longer have to deal with the oppression all around him. He says, but even better than being dead is the one who hasn't been born yet because they haven't even had to see the oppression of life under the sun. Friends, this is bleak. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you read and you're like, is that really in the Bible? Is he allowed to say that? Well, guess what? It's not the only place something like that is said. Listen to Job in Job 3.3. 3. Let the day perish on which I was born. Or Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20.18. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Even Jesus commenting on Judas in Matthew 26, 24 said, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So what do we do with that? What do we do with this cruel treatment of others and unbearable suffering we see around us that, that makes someone say, you know what, it'd be better for those people who are suffering that and experiencing that that they, were, that they hadn't even been born yet. Two things we do. We groan at what we see and we look for comfort. First, we groan. As Christians, we don't look away. We don't just distract ourselves from the pain and brokenness around us. We see what's happening. We don't just lose ourselves in mindless entertainment and hobbies. We don't get so fixed on what's right in front of us that we're like horses with blinders on our eyes that we can't see the pain all around us and as we see what's happening we try to help any way we can we pray we we lend a hand but in it all we groan over the way things are when Jesus came into our broken world he groaned in Mark 7, when people bring a deaf man to Jesus, it says that he, he's deaf and has a speech impediment. Jesus looks up to heaven, it says, and the ESV says he sighs, but the word is groaned. He heals him, but before that, don't miss that groan. They're bringing this man whose body is not the way it should be. It's broken and damaged. He says, I, I didn't make people not to be able to speak and not be able to hear. And as he comes face to face with this suffering and pain, it grieves him. Jesus looks up to heaven and it says, he just, oh. And he does the same thing in the very next chapter in Mark. When the Pharisees come to him to try to test him by demanding a sign, saying, okay, if you say you're somebody special, show us, prove it. And when they say that in Mark 12, it says Jesus sighed deeply in his heart. Same word, he groaned 
deeply over the unbelief he was witnessing. Here was the creator walking amongst his creatures and the creatures won't believe him. And Jesus just says without words, what a broken world. But Jesus isn't the only one who groans. Romans 8 says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning, same word, together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirits groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as son, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the first thing we, we do when we see oppression, friends, is simply groan. Don't rush to try and figure, how can I fix this? What can I do? Just feel it. Because it's an orientation of the heart that acknowledges that this is not the way it ought to be. Don't make peace with the brokenness of the world and just say, that's just the way it is. There should always be this, ugh, why is it this way? The first thing we do is groan. Then the second thing we do, we look for comfort. In the book of Isaiah, God began to speak of this coming comfort for his suffering people. Listen to just a handful of these. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Isaiah 49, 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 52, 9. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And Isaiah 51, 12. God says in no uncertain terms, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who's made like grass? Those are amazing promises. I mean, you can just see the impact over and over. It says, sing, sing, shout, because he's comforting. He's going to comfort us. He's going to comfort us. But where would we find this kind of comfort? We find the comfort we're looking for only in Jesus. He's the one who ended our warfare with God making peace by the blood of his cross so that our iniquity is pardoned. He has compassion on the afflicted and he redeems us from our sin. And because he is the one who comforts us, we don't need to fear the oppression of man. We can answer the old catechism question, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own but belong both body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, when all we see is oppression, he is the comfort we're looking for. Then we come to the preacher's third and final observation. Look at verse four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor, 
This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So now when he looks at the world, what the preacher sees is envy. He says, that's what motivates us in our work. That's what gets us up out of bed to go to the job site, to go to the office. He says, yes, I see everybody working, but for the wrong reasons. Instead of receiving our work as a good gift of God to be enjoyed, we turn work into jealous rivalry and competition. We try to outdo one another and work hard so that we can get the stuff someone else has. Or we want to get something better than them. We want to get their their job title or their office or we want to be able to afford their car or have a house like theirs or go on the vacation they have. So we work. And that's what drives us on is because I want what they have. As one writer put it, we live in a world full of Joneses trying to keep up with each other. And as the preacher looks out on this cutthroat, dog-eat-dog world where people step on one another to try to climb the ladder of success, he identifies two different ways we can wrongly respond to this reality and he uses the imagery of hands to explain them. Look at verses 5 and 6. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So here's how I would rephrase what he says there. Seeing a world driven by greed and envy, we can either fold our hands in lazy idleness or fill our hands with frantic busyness. These are the two ways we go wrong. And even be thinking through your mind. Like, like I said, I know if you've been coming to core class, you're like, I've heard this before. Yeah, it's all over the Bible. And he says there's two ways we can go wrong. We either fold our hands in lazy idleness or fill our hands with frantic busyness. For some of us, we look at this world where everyone's out for themselves, just trying to get ahead, and it leads us to just check out. Say, no, I'm just going to choose. I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to work. So instead, we just fold our hands and find other things to pass the time. We become lazy and idle. But what's the outcome of this? The lazy person, it says, eats his own flesh. Now, that doesn't mean that he's literally a cannibal. What it means is that he's destroying himself by his laziness. Instead of embracing life and the work God's given him to do, he ends up consuming and eating up all that he has. So literally, he eats up his savings. He eats up his possessions. So there's, he has nothing because he's used it all up. He hasn't been working to get anymore. But he's also consuming and eating up anything that he could use to help others. Laziness is actually a way of hating your neighbor. Because the New Testament talks about how we are to work hard so that we have and we have something to share with those in need. This guy doesn't have anything to share. He doesn't have anything to have. Now that's one way we can go wrong. On the far other end of the spectrum is one who responds to this world of envy-driven work by saying, all right, that's the game we're playing. I'm all in. He throws himself into his work. His life is filled with frantic busyness. He can't work enough hours. He's doing, he's got multiple jobs. He's got a side hustle. He's working overtime. He's working weekends. First in, last to leave. He's just giving it everything. He's willing to sacrifice everything. Family, recreation, sleep, doesn't matter. He's working. The picture in verse six of two hands is that they're cupped. 
That's how like the imagery behind the words here is that the hands are cupped, trying to hold as much as they possibly can. Just like somebody's going to give you a bunch of little things, you wouldn't just like have your hands loose. You'd put them together and say, all right, fill it up. And so that's what this guy's doing. He's out to get as much as he can. But what does he end up with? Two hands full of toil and busyness. Yeah, he, he might get some stuff, but he can't even enjoy it because his life is filled with work. You say, all right, either one of those sound good. Is there a third option? <laughs> there is. He says, better is one handful of quietness. This quietness is the word for rest and contentment. One writer describes this quietness as knowing your place in the world, being content with the boundary lines of your life, able to enjoy the fruits of your labor with a cheerful heart. In other words, this person isn't searching for satisfaction by working to the bone to try to get all they can. Instead, because they're satisfied in God alone, they're content to find joy in their God-given work and rest in him. Friends, the good news is that Jesus doesn't demand we work our way to him or try harder, do more. Instead, as we said earlier, he offers us rest. Now, he still calls us to work, right? After all, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. But instead of an exhausting rat race, he offers us his easy yoke and his light burden. Elsewhere, it says his commands are not burdensome. And he is the one who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we work because he's working in us. That's why we sang earlier, it's in his strength we labor. So friends, if you're tired this morning, come to Jesus, rest in him. Now as we wrap this up, I realize it's easy to look around the world and grow discouraged as we see all the brokenness. As we live in an age marked by this wickedness, oppression, and envy, it's easy for us to feel the same way that the character Frodo did in Lord of the Rings when Gandalf told him about this great evil that was at work in the world. Little Frodo had been just minding his business, leading a happy, peaceful life, till he's suddenly thrust into this event and Gandalf's explaining to him just how bad things were out there. He's helping Frodo see what the world is like. And listen to what Frodo says. He says, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Friends, it is not for us to decide our times. We don't get to decide what the world is like and say, I, we don't live in the world where I wish it was this way. It is this way. It's important that we have eyes to see what's really there. It's not for us to decide our times. That belongs to God who makes everything beautiful in its time. The question then is, if we don't get to decide what our times are, what should we do with the time given to us? And the answer in our passage this morning is rejoice in our work with a handful of rest. Don't get lazy in despair and don't get crazy busy. 
When you see brokenness everywhere you look, friend, don't get discouraged. As you look around and you see the plight of the world, the answer is not to stop looking. Instead, look further. Look deeper. Look higher. Look to Jesus. Come, gaze upon your Savior. Come revel and rejoice in your Redeemer. Remember that Jesus will come back again to judge the living and the dead. All that is wrong with the world will be made right. And until then, we can enjoy the work God's given to us even as we rest in him and wait. We keep looking for the full and perfect justice and comfort and rest Jesus promises us even when that's not what we see. We look for it even when we don't see it. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it and look for it with patience. Now as we come to the this is a great opportunity to see the love of God manifested. I'm going to invite the servers to go ahead and come down front and go ahead and take the elements and uh, go to your spots in the aisles. What is so beautiful about this table, friends, is that Jesus gave us a concrete way to visualize his love for us. That we don't just have to talk in abstract ideas. He He said, I want something you can put in your mouths. I want something you can taste something you can touch, something you can smell, so that it's unavoidable that you see what God did for us. And as we come to the table, what we see is that God, the just judge, judged sin perfectly. For those who trust in Jesus, there was not one smidge of your sin that he didn't punish he didn't just say, all right, that one's not a big one. You get a pass on that. That's not a big deal. But you, these three you're paying for. Every sin on him was laid. And Jesus died for you. But then he didn't stay dead. He rose again. So that now when we have faith in him, God is both the just judge of sin and he is the justifier of sinners like you and me. So we come to this table not because we worked hard enough, not because we figured it out, not because we deserve it. We come because of Jesus. And so if that's where you're at this morning saying, he's all I've got, he's my only hope, then we invite you to take part with us. This is a a feast to be enjoyed by those who know Jesus. But if you're still working through things and you're, you're not quite there, you're not ready to say, Jesus is my everything, We want to keep talking with you, but we'd ask, please refrain from taking this. This meal is something that Jesus gave to his followers for those who said, my only hope is not in what I see, but in what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for crackers and a thimble of juice. I'm looking for a marriage supper. But he gave me this to see here and now, so it helps my heart trust him for what I'm looking for.
So in a moment, I'm going to pray. And then when you're ready, you can come down these two outer aisles and, and take the supper when you're ready. Just take the elements back to your seat and hang on to them. And once everybody has been served and we sing a song, I will come back and lead us so we can take them together as the people of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in what this table represents. And we thank you once again that you so loved the world that you gave your only son. God, may we never tire of that reality. And Father, because you did, now we are not consigned to perish, but instead have everlasting life. I pray that this morning as we take this meal together, that you would strengthen weak hearts, and that you would remind us that you have pursued us to forgive us, and you'll never stop. So thank you for the mercy we find in Jesus, in his body and his blood. We pray in his name. Amen.